the infectious disease doctors will get involved and the ecologists will get involved and the rheumatologists will get involved and everyone will sort of take their hammer to the nail. Um, and, and I like those house-like cases. Everyone thinks being a pediatric oncologist is so sad and so terrible, but it's not actually because we have great survival rates. When we diagnose a child with cancer and specifically with leukemia, we get to give that family hope but sometimes we don't win. Sometimes we see kids, you know, hurt. Sometimes we see them, therapies fail them. You cry in the bathroom. You're listening to Masterminds, where we sit down with experts in medicine and technology to talk about everything from the scientific research of today to the innovation of tomorrow. This is Mishka, and today I'm talking to Dr. Abby Green. Dr. Green is a physician and scientist in the Department of Pediatrics at the WashU School of Medicine. Her practice and research focused on the etiology of genome instability in pediatric cancers and the resulting genome protective responses, also called DNA damage responses, that are central to them. She spent her residency and fellowship at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia and is double board certified in infectious diseases and hematology oncology. Her journey to get where she is today is both exciting and impressive, and it started at the mere age of seven years old. So I think I've known that I want to be a pediatric oncologist since I was about seven years old. My father had leukemia when he was in his 20s, and that was in the 1970s when the prognosis for lymphoblastic leukemia was not very good. I think survival rates were in the like less than 10% range for his age group, but he survived amazingly. And then he, uh, in an attempt to, I think, give back, volunteered frequently at the Ronald McDonald House where I grew up. And he had us, me and my brothers come along with. And so a lot of my childhood was spent sort of eating dinner with children who had cancer and their families. And they became friends of mine and friends of our family. And pediatric cancer was just something that was sort of normal in my childhood. And um, I didn't really see any other career that was exciting as helping these kids um, who were my friends. The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP, is consistently ranked best in the country for pediatric oncology. It's been the site of countless firsts and medical breakthroughs, including having the first neonatal surgical and pediatric intensive care unit in the U.S. You really don't get better than CHOP, which is why we were so excited to hear all about Dr. Green's decade-long experience there as first a resident and then a fellow. The breadth and depth of medicine happening there is incredible. You know, there was everything from neonates with congenital disorders all the way to young adults with behavioral disorders, right? It's the it's a full spectrum of pediatric medicine. And then and then, you know, oncology, which is hematology oncology, which is what I focused on. Not only did you get all of the different kinds of leukemia, you got every flavor of that leukemia. Every genetic translocation that's ever been reported and then some that haven't been showed up at CHOP. I was really incredibly well trained clinically there. So I had a combined fellowship and I really sought to find a research project that would combine the fields of infectious diseases and oncology. What I found was a guy named Matt Weitzman. So Matt Weitzman had just moved from California where he was an investigator at the Salk Institute. And he is a virologist 
who is interested in using sort of the conflict between viral genomes and human genomes to understand how human cells deal with damage to their genome. Um, and I was interested in this in part because one of the uh, projects in his lab involved an antiviral enzyme, the ApoBec enzymes. It's actually a family of enzymes. There are seven of them encoded by the human genome. These enzymes mutate DNA and they are supposed to mutate the DNA of viruses. So viruses have DNA genomes. When those DNA genomes are introduced into the cell, the ApoBex sort of unleash and mutate the viral genomes. And then the viral genomes can't replicate themselves. They can't produce viral progeny and they can't go on to infect other cells. So these ApoBec enzymes limit viral infection. That's what they're supposed to do. But Matt had sort of stumbled into the fact that the ApoBec enzymes as DNA mutators can also mutate the host genome. And that's sort of where I picked up my postdoc research. And the question that I was most interested in had to do with the fact that these enzymes specifically mutate single-stranded DNA. So it makes them somewhat specific to certain viruses. There are viruses that either have single-stranded DNA genomes or in the case of retroviruses, their RNA genomes, but they pass through a single-stranded DNA phase as they're replicating themselves. So we know these apopec enzymes are best at restricting viruses with either a single-stranded DNA genome or those that pass through the single-stranded DNA phase during replication. So the question that I asked was, how do these single-strand specific enzymes interact with our double-stranded genome? There are some times during our double-stranded genomes, specifically during DNA replication and repair of DNA breaks, when you can find a little bit of single-stranded DNA hanging around, but it's not very common. If you're interested in the biology of cancer, you might know that tumor genesis is driven by the gradual accumulation of mutations in our DNA, specifically in genes that induce sustained proliferation and survival of cells. Cancer is an ancient disease, with evidence from a fossilized turtle bone dating back to the Triassic period, 250 million years ago. In humans, written records of people suffering from cancer-like bulges and tumors trace back to early Egyptian and Greek civilizations. Perhaps more incontrovertibly, the mummified remains of South American and African tribes prove the existence of osteosarcomas and lymphomas in human bone tissue from as early as 4000 BC. In fact, the main reason cancer seems more common today is simply because thousands of years ago, people just didn't live long enough for driver mutations to manifest into cancer. They were often killed off by something else first, like tuberculosis, smallpox, or the plague. As Siddhartha Mukherjee puts it in his book, Emperor of All Maladies, civilization did not cause cancer, but by extending human lifespans, civilization unveiled it. But for obvious reasons, old age or external carcinogens don't explain pediatric cancers. That's the significance of the apobec enzymes that are central to Dr. Green's research into the drivers of pediatric cancer. By inducing DNA damage, these enzymes that are one of the body's evolutionary defenses against viruses might also ironically be one of the reasons cancer develops in the first place. I started my lab about a year and a half ago, and I'm still interested in the ApoBec enzymes, but now more broadly in their role in cancer. So we know that they can cause mutations in the human genome. What my lab is interested in it is whether those mutations can contribute to malignancy. Do they actually cause a cell to transform from benign to malignant? Or in the case of a cell that's already transformed, do the mutations caused by ApoBec impact that cell's behavior? So can they cause tumor cells to, to be more aggressive, to metastasize more frequently, to be resistant to drugs? 
Or on the flip side, can we use the activity of these enzymes in human cancers as a therapeutic benefit? Can we force them to cause so many mutations that the genome of a cancer cell sort of goes into crisis and and the cell dies? When you think of cancer, what are the first words that come to mind? Sadness? Death? Maybe radiation or chemotherapy? If you're like me, you thought up something along those lines, but listening to Dr. Green, I realized that the world of pediatric cancer is, on the whole, a little less dismal than you might expect. How might the course of treatment in a child's battle with cancer differ from that of an adult? Tremendously. I say this with great knowledge because my husband is a medical oncologist uh, and he specializes in leukemia and stem cell transplant in adults. And we often have this argument about whose job is harder. And he thinks my job is harder. Everyone thinks being a pediatric oncologist is so sad and so terrible, but it's not actually because we have great survival rates. When we diagnose a child with cancer, and specifically with leukemia, we get to give that family hope genuinely that that child is gonna live a full life. My husband, in his field, can't do the same. When he encounters an adult, there isn't the same hope. And and realistically, a provider can't say, we're gonna get you through this. Pediatric and adult cancers are two different diseases. So what I always say to families on day one, any experience that you have with adult cancer, like leave it at the door, don't bring it to this table because breast cancer is not pediatric leukemia. And even adult leukemia is not pediatric leukemia. I think generally we shouldn't think of cancer as one disease. It is many distinct diseases with sort of an umbrella term that encompasses all of them. So that is a that is a day one difference. They have different types of cancer. Even if you say acute lymphoblastic leukemia, it's different in a child than in an adult. Uh, biologically, the tumors are different, but also the way that children tolerate chemotherapy is different than that of an adult. Children are healthier. They tend not to have smoked, drank, been exposed to sun, done all of the damage to their organs that that happens. Um, I should add, like you know, eating into that because diabetes is is certainly a, a comorbidity when we're trying to treat cancer and coronary artery disease. So all of these comorbidities that occur with aging don't exist in in pediatrics. And so we're able to give much more intensive therapy to kids and they tolerate it okay and their organs are healthy at the end of it than what happens in adults. I will say that over the last probably 30 years, maybe longer, the field of pediatric oncology has tried to de-intensify therapy. So I think we overshot, right? If you've read Emperor of All Maladies, um, Sydney Farber developed the first chemotherapeutic and was able to put kids into remission, but we learned that methotrexate was not enough. And so we started doing combination therapy and ultimately got to this point where we had enough and it was three years and dozens of drugs and you know lots of acute side effects. And as we learned, lots of long-term side effects, but the kids survived. And at some point the field said, all right, maybe this is too much. Um, and, and that was coincident with our ability to risk stratify patients and say, based on the characteristics of the cell by flow cytometry or by genomics, This is a low-risk patient, this is a medium-risk patient, this is a high-risk patient. Then we can tailor their therapy to the specifics of their tumor. In the newest era, we have targeted therapies. So BCR-ABLE is a fusion that we can target with a specific drug. So I think that kids now have the benefit of being curable and being able to de-intensify therapy. And I don't think that adult tumors have sort of reached that sweet spot. If there's a name you should know in the field of oncology, it's Sidney Farber. The father of modern chemotherapy and founder of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Farber pioneered the first treatment for childhood leukemia. Up until then, the only treatments for cancer were to either surgically excise the tumor or to use radiation. 
But leukemia is a systemic cancer, a disease of the blood. The overproduction of immature white blood cells in the bone marrow crowds out red blood cells and prevents normal maturation of other immune cells. Put simply, it couldn't be cut or radiated out of the body, and the medical community was at the point of hopeless surrender to it. A pathologist in the 1940s, Sidney Farber had spent years in the basement of Boston Children's scrutinizing leukemia under the microscope. The first of his many genius discoveries was that a competitive agonist for folic acid, a vitamin essential for cell division, could temporarily halt the proliferation of white cells and induce remission in many of his patients. The way that we diagnose leukemia is by looking at bone marrow under a microscope um, and also using flow cytometry, which is a technique to identify specific cellular populations. And so we look for normal cells and then we look for abnormal cells and we can sort of look at some characteristics of the abnormal cells either under the microscope or by flow cytometry. And after that sort of initial pass, which will diagnose a tumor, we then use genetics to dig into what really the genetic characteristics of that tumor are and how they can help to guide therapy. So one great example of this is translocation, which is an abnormal fusion between two genes. And in pediatric leukemia, one of the most common fusions or translocations is between the ETV6 gene and the RUNX1 gene. And while that gene, that fusion probably drives tumor growth and drives malignancy, it is a favorable prognostic factor in pediatric leukemia. So we know if we see ETV6 and RUNX1 fused in the genome of a child's leukemia, that we can sort of give them the scaled down version of therapy, which is great because they don't incur so many toxicities and side effects from chemo. Um, there are other genetic abnormalities that we find during diagnosis that would guide us to increase or intensify therapy because we know that um, prognostically those are unfavorable markers. I would say that what always surprises me are the uncommon presentations of common diseases. Most of pediatric leukemia is acute leukemia. We call it acute leukemia because it arises acutely. It hasn't been hanging around for a long time. That's called chronic leukemia. But sometimes you see these patients who have actually had symptoms for months or even years, and those patients are always astounding. Pre-B cell ALL in children has a greater than 90% probably greater than 95% survival rate. So the cases that are difficult to treat are always surprising to me. The cases of pediatric pre-B cell ALL that don't go into remission with standard therapy um, are always surprising to me. And this is why therapies like um, CAR T-cell or adoptive cell therapy have evolved because of those cases that we can't treat with conventional therapy. In our plight to draw connections between Dr. Green's everyday life and that of Dr. House, we asked her if she's ever experienced a patient whose illness was a mystery and a challenge to diagnose. TV drama fans, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yes. So that always happens. There's always these children who show up with fevers or with joint pains or with abdominal pain. And the general pediatrics team sort of takes hold of their evaluation. And eventually, you know, the infectious disease doctors will get involved and the oncologist will get involved and the rheumatologist will get involved and everyone will sort of take their hammer to the nail. Um, and, and I like those house-like cases because uh, it, it really takes a village to diagnose and help these children. There's also within oncology, sometimes we see tumors that 
that throw us for a loop. So I can remember a child who was a five month old and she showed up in the ICU at CHOP with really bad strider. We thought she had bronchiolitis, which is the um, respiratory disease that's caused by the RSV virus. And it's really common in five month old children. And she had strider and she had trouble breathing and she was ne she needed some oxygen and everyone assumed this was RSV. Um, and some very astute ICU clinician picked up on the fact that this was different than typical RSV. Her x-ray looks pretty clear. It didn't look like her lungs were infected. And so he imaged her neck. She had a giant tumor in her neck. And we had a really hard time diagnosing that because to get a biopsy of that tumor required sedating a five-month-old. Uh, but sedating a child with that degree of respiratory distress was not safe at all. And so it took this amazing team of interventional radiologists who you know, put the needle in and anesthesiologists who were able to calm the child without actually slowing her respiratory drive and pathologists and oncologists and ICU docs to come together and, and diagnose this kid. And ultimately, the little girl had intermediate risk neuroblastoma, which is an infinitely treatable disease. And she's, I don't know, 10 years old today and doing great. Do you enjoy working with a lot of different types of doctors to collaborate and solve cases? I do, as long as they all cooperate. I think there, I would say less disagreement than difference in perspective. You know, that comes from our silos of practice and experience as physicians, right? Oftentimes I'll say, can you, can you resect this tumor? Can you cut this tumor out? Because that's the best course of therapy. And a surgeon will say, I don't think that's a good idea because in my experience, the position of this tumor or the vasculature that's involved in this tumor is going to make this a, a very risky surgery. And we have to sort of, you know, come together using our combined perspectives and it's Rarely, a, you know, I rarely say cut out the tumor and the surgeon says no. More, we have to sort of combine forces um, in order to come up with the best and safest course of, of therapy for a child. I, I have to address the fact that being a pediatric oncologist or a pediatrician at all is difficult because sometimes we don't win, right? Rarely, but sometimes we don't win. Sometimes we, sometimes we see kids, you know, hurt. Sometimes we see them, therapies fail them. Um, and sometimes we see them die. And that is incredibly difficult as a physician and as a human. Um, and I think one of the things that I've learned a lot over my years in training and as an attending is how to manage that personally. I had an amazing clinical mentor at CHOP, Ro Bagatelle, who taught me, you cry in the bathroom. And I and I love that statement because it encompasses so much. So first of all, we cry. Physicians cry, right? Like we are sad about losses and failures. I take it very personally. I think we all do, whether we admit it or not. Um, but if if I lose a patient, you know, I feel very responsible for that. And the other thing is, is that it's not our loss, right? If I have a patient die, it is that family's loss. It's not mine, right? I was the physician that was here to sort of guide them through it. I'm, they aren't my child. But you often fall in love with these kids and it's really hard to see them have difficulty, have pain or or die. And I, I don't think that it's fair. And I think that you'll find differing opinions here, but I don't think it's fair to make your loss uh, something that the family has to manage as well. So I like that advice. You cry in the bathroom. Um, and I try to I try to take that advice when the going gets rough. Fortunately, in pediatrics and even in pediatric oncology, the going doesn't get that rough very often. So what's gratifying? Getting a kid through cancer therapy, getting emails from families that um, you know, patients I treated when they were seven years old are applying for college now, uh, writing letters of recommendation for teenage patients who survived osteosarcoma and are now getting their master's in social work on a full scholarship. I mean, these kids go on and have amazing lives and their families have so much, you know, joy around their successes and achievements. And having played a small part in that is, is incredible and is the reason that we can keep doing this and, and can deal with the losses. 
last 10 years, treatment for cancer has improved beyond measure. The death rate has continued to decrease alongside developments in immunotherapy like immune checkpoint inhibitors and CAR T-cell therapy. Better ways to sequence DNA and crunch data has also led to a more holistic understanding of tumor microenvironments, and a larger emphasis continues to be placed on lifestyle and environmental risk factors for developing it. This also means that the way that doctors are trained in oncology today in some ways looks very different compared to a decade ago. I would say that in pediatric oncology, we have a great barometer of progress in um, a consortium that's really driven improvements in cancer therapy for children over the last 20 or 30 years. Even these big pediatric oncology centers don't accrue enough numbers um, because pediatric cancer is fortunately very rare to really powerfully study any new treatment regimen. So the Children's Oncology Group is 211 hospitals or pediatric oncology practices that pool all of their patients into the same clinical trials. And with those numbers, we can now study what a new treatment has on a population. Uh, but there are many different technological advances as well that the current trainees have to be up to speed with. One example is how we measure disease that remains after treatment. Um, and we call that MRD or minimal residual disease. We, we used to just look under the microscope at a bone marrow specimen and say, we can see cells, there's a lot of them, or there's a small number, or we can't see any cells. And then as technology advanced, um, we were able to say, we can measure 10,000 cells. And now we're into the like millions or even billions um, as technology has advanced. And so our understanding of how much disease remains after therapy uh, is much better. And we have to continue to sort of adjust the treatments that we give children based on this new knowledge. What are some new diagnostics or therapies that you look forward to incorporating into your practice? Um, like what do you see for the future of cancer medicine? I'm going to give the generic answer here, but it truly is targeted therapy. And I think another way of saying that is, is precision medicine. What I would love to see is smarter therapies and less side effects. And, I, and by smarter therapy, you know, conventional chemotherapeutics, those classes of drugs that Sydney Farber so helpfully provided us with are actually really stupid. They just target replicating cells and cancers replicate really fast. And so those drugs tend to disproportionately impact cancer cells, but we have a lot of cells in our body that replicate fast. And this is where all the toxicities come in, right? Healthy blood cells, which we need, are targeted sort of accidentally by conventional chemotherapy. And that's a lot of what I think about in my research and a lot of uh, what I hope for in the future of, of cancer medicine and pediatric and adult medicine. The first truly targeted therapy, which was imatinib for the BCR-able fusion in CML, opened up a whole can of worms that I think we're all trying to expand on now. Um, but I think that's how we're going to A, cure cancer, and B, make sure that patients don't die in the process of treating their cancer. For anyone who knows me well, you know I'm always on the lookout for expert opinions on how American hospitals can optimize patient treatment from a technological and business administration lens. Unsurprisingly, current archaic electronic medical record systems seem to do a really great job of stifling that transition to a time and money efficient hospital network. At the very least, they're slowing our doctors down all healthcare providers have to deal with the challenges of the electronic medical record. And there's great benefit 
to an EMR, and I don't mean to diminish that, but I think that it has maybe like chemotherapy sort of overshot <laughs> where it should be. And there's too much of a burden. We spend a ton of time charting, looking at other people's notes, trying to find notes, trying to find lab results. These are complex um, systems that are not intuitive. Um, and I, for example, see patients only 20% of my time. So I'm not seeing patients every single day, right? Because I have a lab to run. The system is constantly updating. And so I'm, I have to learn the updates every time I get to it. I'm asking tons of questions of different people all the time when I am on service and having to use the EMR. And that's just my experience. There's people who are doing this all the time who their time is more taken up by this. The other thing that also drives me crazy about healthcare in this country is that we don't have a common electronic medical record. Everyone is still fragmented and proprietary. And there are reasons for that that I understand, but we need to start sharing healthcare information more fluidly. Camden Coalition with a, is a healthcare alliance in Camden, New Jersey that sort of sought to diminish emergency room use by these um, so-called super users. So these are patients who are have a ton of medical problems, a lot of behavioral health problems, problems, a lot of addictions, often homelessness, and a lot of social um, diseases as well. And they use the ER as sort of a primary care practice and psychology practice and, you know, whatever they need, they show up in the ER. They need a meal, right? And they show up in the ER. That's understandable given the circumstances that these people live in, um, but they don't just go to one ER, right? They go to whatever ER is closest. Uh, and sometimes they get admitted to the hospital. And then a couple weeks later, they use another ER and get admitted to that hospital. And no one knows what's going on. And that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem in our country. There's so much computing power in this world. We must be able to do it better. We must be able to like, you know, part of it is that physicians aren't trained as software engineers or software technologists. Like we're not good at this. As a, as a field, we're not good at this. So we need the software technologists to come to our level and make it more intuitive and, and make it more clear and then make it more broadly available. While we were on the subject of technology, we asked Dr. Green about how telemedicine in the age of COVID has affected cancer treatment overall. Yeah, so I would actually say that telemedicine is a perk of COVID. We've learned this whole new way of interacting with our patients that's easier for them in many cases. It's easier for us in some cases. Um, and we've sort of worked out the kinks over the course of the last year. As a country, we're late to the game on this. We should have done this sooner, and I'm glad for that benefit. But, you know, there are patients who, who can't be cared for in their own home, right, who need to be admitted to the hospital. And I think that COVID has certainly made that more difficult, in part because it sort of overtook all of our brains for a long time, right? All we thought about was COVID. What precautions do I need when I walk onto this floor? What are the numbers today? Who's in charge of the COVID unit? Who's carrying what pager? And you had to put that aside when you were taking care of patients. And I think we've moved on from that now. There's not the COVID obsession in each hospital. The diagnosis of pediatric cancer is an emergency and emergencies were never limited or diminished during COVID, or at least they weren't supposed to be. And I don't think that we've you know, missed cancer diagnoses during COVID or diagnosed them any differently. Still, our need to be socially distanced and safe has hindered our ability to communicate with each other as healthcare practitioners and also with patients and families. So in pediatrics, Simply, it, kids don't like when you walk in wearing a mask and a gown and an eye shield. It's scary and it's weird for them and it, it inhibits my ability to have rapport with a child. 
I think there's a great example from the ear, nose, and throat department at CHOP. They refused to let any physician or, or practitioner wear a white coat in their department because they didn't want the kids to get nervous. So they wanted the physicians and the nurse practitioners and the nurses just to look like regular people. It's That's an extreme example, but it's sort of true. You want to you wanna get to a kid's level and wearing all that crap, forgive me, on your face is not a good way to get to a kid's level. And then there are, there are you know, more subtle examples like uh, I like to look at pathology specimens alongside a pathologist. And I like to review radiographic images with a radiologist. Not being able to do those things side by side and really look together and, and ask and answer questions in person limited our ability to, to provide excellent care. It was such a pleasure to interview Dr. Green. She was the ideal podcast guest, and if we weren't rounding up on the hour, or if she wasn't a busy doctor, we just might have talked to her for hours. Oh, and for the pre-med listeners. Med school's not that hard. The tests are hard, but med school's not that hard. So if you want to do it, if you really feel passionate about it, just go for it. It's not going to be that hard. I think it gets a lot of hype. And do research. Research, I think, helps you find your passion in medicine. And I think medicine helps you find your passion in research. And I think the world needs more physicians and scientists. Um, and the other thing that I'm just going to use this podcast to exploit is vaccine safety. <laughs> vaccine, I am an infectious disease doctor. Vaccines are safe. I actually take care of the most immunocompromised people in the entire world. That is my tiny little niche. And there is an argument to be made that a live virus vaccine is dangerous for my patients. They probably are. But if you are a healthy person out in the community and you are getting an inactivated or non-live virus vaccine, there is almost zero risk to you. So talk to your own doctors, but after you talk to them, go get vaccines. If you like the Masterminds podcast, make sure you follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Masterminds Pod. Or if you're feeling extra cool, you can check out our website, mastermindspodcast.co. Thanks for listening, everyone.